HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Our master cheesemaker program is one of the only two in the world. So it's no wonder every master in America has called Wisconsin home. Find your next favorite cheese and meet our makers at wisconsincheese.com. Did you know that according to the USDA, more than 38 million people, including 12 million children in the United States, are food insecure? In 2020, over 60 million people turned to food banks and community programs for help putting food on the table. The pandemic has increased food insecurity among families with children and communities of color who already faced hunger at much higher rates before the pandemic. Food insecure young children are nearly twice as likely to be in fair or poor health when compared to food secure young children and are significantly more likely to be hospitalized. You just heard Michael Edwin delivering facts about food insecurity as it manifests for families all over the country. As food insecurity skyrocketed during the pandemic, we heard about food banks needing to turn people away because they did not have enough. We saw viral photos of cars lined up to get groceries. In cities from Pittsburgh to San Antonio to Los Angeles, millions sought and continue to seek food access. In response, we see the emergence of community fridges, new food networks, farmers market matching programs, and more. This week's episode looks at the challenges of food accessibility and how people all over the country are organizing to feed their communities. I'm Dylan Hoyer, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. One DIY method of addressing food insecurity is refrigerators. Out on the sidewalk with free food for whoever passes by. H. Conley went to Queens, New York to speak to members of the Ridgewood Tenants Union about their community fridge project. The community fridge is a response to food insecurity caused by the pandemic. Um, 
This is Tally Medell, a member of the Ridgewood Tenants Union, a group that's been organizing around tenants' rights since 2014. We spoke at a block party celebrating the one-year anniversary of their community fridge project. Tally's lived in the area for eight years and has seen how the presence of herself and others like her have impacted the neighborhood around them. The artist class the of, you know, not always white, but a lot of the time white, um, young people who move to these neighborhoods, then our presence is preyed upon by developers who think, oh, I'm going to go fill their needs, which is a you know, place with really expensive coffee and stuff. And like, the truth is, most of us can't afford that sort of thing. But then our presence brings those things, and then more people come, and then they're displacing our neighbors. So, And as Raquel Nemuche, a lifelong resident of the area and founder of the Tenants Union, pointed out, We know that when rents go up, so does food, right? And so what we do is we connect the issues of lack of food justice, right, to issues of displacement and gentrification in our working class neighborhood. And we know this is an issue that's mainly affecting our undocumented neighbors, our immigrant neighbors, or working class neighbors. Raquel, along with other members of the union, set up the fridge outside King's Juice Bar with the support and free electricity provided by the owner, Ryan King. I mean, they approached me and I liked the idea and I said, okay, I'm all on board. Being for the community 37 years, the neighborhood's changing, people are in need and community love and partnership is a beautiful thing. It's what makes the world go around. Other local businesses help out as well. Pakistani restaurant BK Johnny, Austrian Cafe Porcelain, and Rudy's Bakery, which has been a staple of the community for 87 years, all donate food regularly. Volunteers from the Tenants Union clean and restock twice a day. It's quite a community effort and can sound idyllic, but not everyone has gotten on board. People complain about the dumbest shit. So, like, there are certain businesses here that complain that there's a bunch of, like, accumulated garbage here on the street when it's always been an issue like people have always dumped garbage in this little street just because it's convenient and but some people blame it on us and i know it's not us because there's also a lot of uh conflict around the fridge because people are sort of policing one another about how much they should take there's a lot of assumptions made about why people are taking more and despite these bumps in the road the tenants union has brought community members together the fridge is there, outside King's Juice Bar, for whoever needs it. But Tally said... The dream would be that we don't need this fridge and that resources are dispersed enough so that no one is food insecure. It's insane that there's food insecurity. It doesn't make any sense. Um, so, yes, it would be cool if, the, if our fridge was always full of beautiful fruits and vegetables and lots of things to take, but it's not that big and we're not a real food pantry. Um, There are currently 153 community fridges across New York City, according to a site set up to track them. These projects can't address the root causes of food insecurity, but every meal makes a difference, no matter how small. COVID-19 impacted the food industry in many ways, from the shutting down of restaurants to issues in the supply chain. But perhaps one surprising winner was farmers markets, many of which enjoyed some of their highest sales ever in 2020. Markets provide a safe way to get local produce and connect with the community. And to increase accessibility, many markets have expanded food assistance programs. Junie Terry explores one of these programs in Chicago. 
For the past year, I've worked for a farm helping to sell produce at the 61st Street Farmers Market in Chicago. The market is run by an organization called the Experimental Station. The Experimental Station describes itself as a, quote, independent cultural infrastructure on the south side of Chicago. In addition to being home to a restorative justice nonprofit, a space for artists, and a cafe, it is also the organizer of the 61st Street Farmers Market of Chicago and the Link Matching Program for Illinois. The Link Matching Program is helping to expand access to fresh groceries for recipients of food assistance. They match up to $25 to Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program benefits, otherwise known as SNAP benefits, when the recipient spends those SNAP dollars at farmers markets. Here's Emily Cross, market manager at the 61st Street Farmers Market. I have been working within local ag for the past six years, I think 2014, maybe 2013, when I first discovered, oh, I can bring my link to the market, swipe my card and actually get more money to spend on fruits and vegetables. And it like blew my mind and it was amazing. And I was like, so, so happy to spend my link dollars at the market and know that I could get more and support more local vendors. From using the program as a consumer to now working as the market manager, Emily has experienced the link matching program from many different perspectives. Before her current job as market manager, Emily worked for Irving Canopy, an urban farm on the south side of Chicago. And from there, being exposed to it as a vendor, you know, I would go to markets all over the city. Some of them were like the bigger markets that had lots of vendors and some we were the only vendor at that market. And you could tell it made such a difference in folks' food dollars to be able to have this option to spend more. The link matching program is not just an investment in food accessibility. It is also an investment in local farmers. I've been in this position since May, so it is a newer experience for me to be the manager of the market rather than a vendor. But it is it is a lot of new just discovery of, you know, behind the scenes, what's involved and the different partners within the local city and federal and state level and just all these different moving parts to, to make these things happen. The challenges of running a matching program do not end at getting the funds. Emily and the vendors have to illustrate to consumers why the market is a valuable place to spend their money. Sometimes, again, in my experience, there can be this kind of combativeness or just difficulty, um, especially when you're serving folks who are used to grocery stores primarily. They're not used to farmer's markets. They're not used to like a difference in price or quality and taste and all of those things. And so there can be a moment of like, well, this pepper is like 25 cents at the grocery store. Why, why are you selling it for, you know, like $3 a pound or whatever? Like what, what's this all about? And, and it can be hard when, you, when you're a farmer, especially, and you've worked so hard to grow and care for and harvest something to have that kind of response. And I think it gives a little bit of cushion and wiggle room to that relationship where it's like, okay, I have a little bit more money than I normally would to spend, and I can, I can go a little further with these dollars. Some argue these programs don't go far enough. In the state of Illinois, if you are over 60 or disabled, the income limit to receive SNAP benefits increases, so food assistance should theoretically become more accessible. But many seniors lack understanding of how the program works and how to apply. By some estimates, only a third of eligible seniors apply for food assistance. One way Illinois has begun to address this is through the Seniors Farmers Markets Nutrition Program, which provides eligible low-income seniors with an additional $25 coupons outside of SNAP to spend at farmers markets. But these are not matched by the market like SNAP benefits. 
for specifically seniors, like folks who don't necessarily have much other income to work with, they, they're kind of left out of the equation when it comes to these programs. They're given maybe $25 from senior coupons for a season and that's it. And so it's something I have been in, in discussions with when I've met with different policymakers and officials that, you know, this is a concern and this is something that I've seen and others have seen. Improving the link matching program is not just a matter of creating more access to fresh food. It is also a way to build stronger communities centered around the way people get their food and care for their health. I would love to see more intergenerational types of programs out there just because there are so many seniors that have extensive knowledge when it comes to foodways, when it comes to farming, who are just sort of left in the dust. It's like, how can we empower folks to be connected in these certain ways so that they see those, those things about them that are so worthwhile, that are so valuable, rather than just sort of pushing them off to the side. And I think one way to do that is, is having these kinds of programs, but also having, you know, green areas, gardens, places where people can connect. The Link Matching Program is just one small part of a number of programs supporting food access across the city of Chicago. It is part of a greater nexus of initiatives through the Experimental Station, as well as other city organizations that are coming up with unique community-driven solutions. Chicago is a really interesting example of what grassroots food response and mutual aid can look like. I think just being around for roughly six and a half years in this space and seeing how people responded to COVID, it's incredible the amount of energy and amount of work that people are putting into to try to address food access within the city. It's definitely not solving anything. I don't think you can solve hunger unless like we become like plants and can photosynthesize our food, like honestly, but it is, it is doing so much to, to look out for those in your community and address these things in a way that's not just, you know, charity, but it's actually like working together to build something that's more sustainable for everybody involved and that, that you're actually caring for your neighbor in that way. So I think Again, there's not, a, there's not enough, but it's really inspiring when you start to really get into it and you start to see what people are doing to help each other. The Link Matching Program is not perfect, and it's not the only solution to food insecurity in Chicago, but it's a step in the right direction. It's a model for how food assistance programs can redefine how we address food access and create sustainable food systems in our communities. We'll be right back with more Mean 3 after a brief break. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. In Wisconsin, cheese is our thing. Wisconsin is the only state in the country that requires a license to make cheese. From curds to cheddar, blue to brick, Wisconsin cheesemakers can do it all. We blend tradition with innovation to create an incredible variety of cheeses that you just can't get anywhere else. You've heard of a PhD, but have you heard of a PH cheese? otherwise known as the Wisconsin Master Cheesemaker Program. This rigorous study of cheese is an elite accomplishment earned by only 80 talented cheesemakers in Wisconsin, and the program is only one of two in the world. 
Becoming a master cheesemaker takes 13 years and is basically like a doctorate in a specific variety of cheese with intense requirements to succeed. Our master cheesemaker program allows makers to perfect both the art and science of their craft in a tradition so rich you can taste it. Find your next favorite cheese and meet our makers at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back to Meat and 3. To understand how local food access fits into the big picture of international trade, we turn our attention to Arizona's food superhighway. Andriana Chow speaks with Dr. Lauren Belante. She's the assistant director of the University of Arizona's Center for Regional Food Studies and conducts research on the food systems of the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. We have this massive superhighway of food coming in through the terrestrial ports across from Sonora and through Nogales, Arizona. And that means that we are bringing in millions and millions of pounds of fresh produce from Mexico. The idea that there's people going hungry when there's food, you know, this abundance of food, it doesn't sit right. Superhighway indeed. Most of the fresh produce available to us in winter comes from Mexico or Central America. Since Arizona borders Mexico, all this produce must pass through the border's food safety inspections, sit in warehouses, and wait for brokerage firms to find buyers. This huge undertaking is made even more difficult when the market changes suddenly. If all of a sudden the Florida tomatoes and the tomatoes coming in from Mexico are all like getting ripe and moving at the same time, you can have a big glut of tomatoes. And that means that the people that are storing all of that produce are faced with a big problem of trying to sell that product and move it to people that are going to buy it. Issues like these can result in literal tons of food waste. Luckily, there are some efforts to mitigate this. For example, the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona rescues millions of pounds of produce and redistributes it throughout Arizona and neighboring states. And then there's other groups that take the food and distribute it at different points throughout the state. Whoever is um, in need can go and spend $10 and then they can get up to 60 pounds of fresh produce of that rescued produce. Dr. Belante added that local connections were able to deliver food to elderly people during the pandemic. But there's another crucial group that struggled with food insecurity, the Tohono O'odham Nation, which sits on the U.S.-Mexico border. And it's about the size of Connecticut. So it's 2.8 million acres. It's a massive region. And yet it only has one full service grocery store. Many organizations had to pivot their operations to address food security with the Tohono O'odham people. But historically, the native people of the Southwest have been the most well adapted to live on the arid land. The Tohono O'odham people have traditionally grown tepary beans, which are drought tolerant and highly nutritious. The Hopi people have utilized dryland farming to grow corn with small amounts of water. And water usage can be contentious. One of the big concerns that we're watching is to what extent is water being used to produce these big commodity crops that oftentimes aren't even staying within our state but are being, you know, shipped out all over the country. While there are larger policy and economic factors to address when it comes to water usage and climate change, there is also potential to feed the community with foods already adjusted to Arizona's climate. Historically in this region, some of the wild 
foods that have been able to be consumed include um, like the saguaro cactus fruits, mesquite pods. A lot of people are now growing, um, you know, prickly pear. Food waste, rural access, and water use. Plenty of tough decisions being made in Arizona. I just hope that people continue to ask those difficult questions. And if we keep coming together and putting our heads together, we're going to come up with exciting solutions to keep moving in the right direction. Arizona's food system shows how communities are intertwined with local economics and geography. But as Dr. Belante said, let's keep the momentum going and work across our communities to put food on the table for all. Sudden changes in the market, paired with a shifting climate, can have dramatic impact on food access. In any one area, there are many various barriers to people receiving food. Food providers adapt and shift as circumstances change. Our final story explores the potential for community partnerships to address these diverse needs and work in collaboration with one another. Angie Fike takes us into the world of Berkeley Food Network and its unique approach to food accessibility. The bags that people receive from drive through pantries are usually one-size-fits-all and composed of mostly shelf-stable foods. At Berkeley Food Network, or BFN, strong community partnerships make it so that the right kinds of foods and the right amounts reach clients. We think it's really important that our work be centered through community knowledge, I guess, is that the right way to say it? So that we know who we're serving and we work with people who really know the people we're serving and they can give us the kind of feedback we need. This is Sarah Weber, co-founder and executive director of BFN. When Sarah entered the realm of food pantry work in Berkeley, the model was such that the bulk of goods came through the Alameda County Food Bank and could only be delivered in truckload-sized amounts. Smaller pantries often struggled to access these deliveries. In 2016, BFN emerged as an intermediary and coordinator between partners doing crucial food service work, acting as a food distribution hub and communication center. BFN helps food access groups actually access the food. BFN has over 50 local partnerships, including senior citizen centers, elementary school lunch programs, food justice groups affiliated with UC Berkeley, neighborhood grocery stores, restaurants, and nearby farms. The organization facilitates connections between food banks, local food producers, and clients in need. It redirects food that would often otherwise be wasted. BFN keeps everything in the community. The food is produced here, we purchase it here. It helps, you know, create jobs and creating jobs helps lessen the need for our food. Sarah told me a story about BFN's work in getting nutritional food to senior populations in Berkeley. This had ripple effects for the community's well-being. And the really cool thing is, is that they would line up early for the pantry and they really didn't need to. But it gave them time to stand together and talk and it was a super, super social moment for them. Six months after the program started, the director of health for the city of Berkeley's aging services division told Sarah that they were getting reports of improved health outcomes, such as blood pressure measures and glucose readings. So we came to understand that we were serving a population that was nutrition insecure. Like they didn't see themselves as super 
food insecure. But being able to get the free produce twice a month made a huge difference for their health. So that was super exciting. Since then, BFN has continued to build out holistic partnerships of this nature. Even if we're pre-packing bags, we were doing it in conversation with the organization we were serving. So we added in these breakfasts for seniors, for instance, or another organization said, nobody wants any cans at all, you know, that sort of thing. Or we could use a meal a day from your frozen meals for everyone. Just before the pandemic, BFN was feeding about 1,600 people per week. Now, less than two years later, they reach close to 7,000 people per week. The biggest challenge now is developing a steady funding source, so BFN is looking to the community for consistent support to match its new growth. Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Andriana Chow, H. Conley, Junie Terry, Angie Fike, and Michael Edwin. Mean 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Dylan Hoyer. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch, whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey. Write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>